Hello and welcome, friends, family, and... Oh, all right. I, I can't do this. It's been too long. Much too long. I've been traveling. I've been away from being able to do any recording. And I just want to say how thankful I am to finally get back behind the mic. And so, without further ado, we will continue... In this episode, episode pseudo 11, with chapters 3 and 4 of War and Peace, this is chapter 3 of War and Peace. Anna Pavlovna's reception was in full swing. The spindles hummed steadily and ceaselessly on all sides. With the exception of the aunt, beside whom sat only one elderly lady, who, within her thin, careworn face, was rather out of place in this brilliant society. The whole company had settled into three groups. One, chiefly masculine, had formed round the abbey. Another, of young people, was grouped around the beautiful Princess Helene, Prince Vasily's daughter, and the little Princess Bolkonskia, very pretty and rosy though rather too plump for her age. The third group was gathered round Mortimer and Anna Pavlovna. The Viscount was a nice-looking young man with soft features and polished manners who evidently considered himself a celebrity, but out of politeness modestly placed himself at the disposal of the circle in which he found himself. Anna Pavlovna was obviously serving him up as a treat to her guests, as a clever maitre d'hôtel serves up a specially choice delicacy, a piece of meat, that no one who had seen it in the kitchen would have cared to eat, so Anna Pavlovna served up to her guests, first the Viscount and then the Abbey, as peculiarly choice morsels. The group about Mortimer immediately began discussing the murder of the Duke d'Enghien, the Viscount said that the Duke d'Enghien had perished by his own magnanimity and that there were particular reasons for Bonaparte's hatred of him. Ah, yes, do tell us about it, Viscount, said Anna Pavlovna with a pleasant feeling that there was something a la Louis XV in the sound of that sentence. Come, tell us all about it, Viscount. The Viscount bowed and smiled courteously in token of his willingness to comply. Anna Pavlovna arranged a group round him, inviting everyone to listen to his tale. The Viscount knew the Duke personally, whispered Anna Pavlovna to one of the guests. The Viscount is a wonderful raconter, she said to another. How evidently he belongs to the best society, said she to a third. And the Viscount was served up to the company in the choicest and most advantageous style like a well-garnished joint of roast beef on a hot dish. The Viscount wished to begin his story, and gave a subtle smile. "'Come over here, Helene, dear,' said Anna Pavlovna to the beautiful young princess who was sitting some way off, the center of another group. The princess smiled. She rose with the same unchanging smile with which she had first entered the room. The smile of a perfectly beautiful woman. With a slight rustle of her white dress trimmed with moss and ivy, 
with a gleam of white shoulders, glossy hair, and sparkling diamonds, she passed between the men who had made way for her, not looking at any of them, but smiling on all, as if graciously allowing each the privilege of admiring her beautiful figure and shapely shoulders, back and bosom, which, in the fashion of those days, were very much exposed. And she seemed to bring the glamour of a ballroom with her as she moved toward Anna Pavlovna. Helene was so lovely that not only did she not show any trace of coquetry, but on the contrary, she even appeared shy of her unquestionable and all too victorious beauty. She seemed to wish, but to be unable to diminish its effect. How lovely said everyone who saw her, and the Viscount lifted his shoulders and dropped his eyes, as if startled by something extraordinary when she took her seat opposite and beamed upon him also with her unchanging smile. Madame, I doubt my ability before such an audience, said he, smilingly inclining his head. The princess rested her bare round arm on a little table and considered a reply unnecessary. She smilingly waited. All the time the story was being told, she sat upright, glancing now at her beautiful red arm, altered in shape by its pressure on the table, now at her still more beautiful bosom, on which she readjusted a diamond necklace. From time to time she smoothed the folds of her dress, and whenever the story produced an effect, she glanced at Anna Pavlovna, at once adopted just the expression she saw on the maid of honor's face, and again relapsed into her radiant smile. The little princess had also left the tea table and followed Helene. Wait a moment, I'll get my work. Now then, what are you thinking of? She went on, turning to Prince Hippolyte. Fetch me my work bag. There was a general movement as the princess, smiling and talking merrily to everyone at once, sat down and gaily arranged herself in her seat. Now I'm all right, she said, and asking the Viscount to begin, she took up her work. Prince Hippolyte, having brought up the work bag, joined the circle and moved a chair close to hers, seated himself beside her. The charming Hippolyte was surprising by his extraordinary resemblance to his beautiful sister, but yet more by the fact that in spite of this resemblance, he was exceedingly ugly. His features were like his sister's, but while in her case everything was lit up by a joyous, self-satisfied, youthful, and constant smile of animation, and by the wonderful classic beauty of her figure, his face, on the contrary, was dulled by imbecility and a constant expression of sullen self-confidence while his body was thin and weak. His eyes, nose, and mouth all seemed puckered into a vacant, wearied grimace, and his arms and legs always fell into unnatural positions. It's not going to be a ghost story, said he, sitting down beside the princess and hastily adjusting his lorgnette, as if without this instrument he could not begin to speak. Why, no, my dear fellow, said the astonished narrator, shrugging his shoulders, because I hate ghost stories, said Prince Hippolyte in a tone which showed that 
He only understood the meaning of his words after he uttered them. He spoke with such self-confidence that his hearers could not be sure whether what he said was very witty or very stupid. He was dressed in a dark green dress coat, knee breeches of the color of Cuisse de Nymphe Afraï, as he called it, shoes and silk stockings. The Viscount told his tale very neatly. It was an anecdote, then current to the effect that the Duc d'Enghien had gone secretly to Paris to visit Mademoiselle Georges, that at her house he came upon Bonaparte, who also enjoyed the famous actress's favors, and that in his presence Napoleon happened to fall into one of the fainting fits to which he was subject, and was thus at the Duke's mercy. The latter spared him, and this magnanimity Bonaparte subsequently repaid by death. The story was very pretty and interesting, especially at the point where the rivals suddenly recognized one another, and the ladies looked agitated. Charming, said Anna Pavlovna with an inquiring glance at the little princess. Charming, whispered the little princess, sticking the needle into a work as if to testify that the interest and fascination of the story prevented her from going on with it. The Viscount appreciated this silent praise, and smiling gratefully, prepared to continue. But just then, Anna Pavlovna, who had kept a watchful eye on the young man who so alarmed her, noticed that he was talking too loudly and vehemently with the abbe, so she hurried to the rescue. Pierre had managed to start a conversation with the abbe about the balance of power, and the latter evidently interested by the young man's simple-minded eagerness, was explaining his pet theory. Both were talking and listening too eagerly and too naturally, which was why Anna Pavlovna disapproved. The means are the bounds of power in Europe and the rights of the people, the abbe was saying. It is only necessary for one powerful nation like Russia, barbaric as she is said to be, to place herself disinterestedly at the head of an alliance having for its object the maintenance of the balance of power of Europe. And it would save the world. But how are you going to get that balance? Pierre was beginning. At that moment, Anna Pavlovna came up and looked severely at Pierre, asked the Italian how he stood Russian climate. The Italian's face instantly changed and assumed an offensively affected, sugary expression, evidently habitual to him when conversing with women. I am so enchanted by the brilliancy of the wit and culture of the society, more especially of the feminine society, in which I have had the honor of being received, that I have not yet had time to think of the climate said he, not letting the abbe and Pierre escape, Anna Pavlovna, the more conveniently to keep them under observation, brought them into the larger circle. End of chapter three. Chapter four. Just then, another visitor entered the drawing room. Prince Andrew Bokonsky, the little princess's husband. He was a very handsome young man, of medium height, with firm, clear-cut features, 
everything about him, from his weary, bored expression to his quiet, measured step, offered a most striking contrast to his quiet little wife. It was evident that he not only knew everyone in the drawing room, but had found them to be so tiresome that it had wearied him to look at or listen to them. And among all these faces that he found so tedious, none seemed to bore him so much as that of his pretty wife. He turned away from her with a grimace that distorted his handsome face, kissed Anna Pavlovna's hand, and screwing up his eyes, scanned the whole company. You are off to war, prince, said Anna Pavlovna. General Kututsov, said Bolkonsky, speaking French and stressing the last syllable of the general's name like a Frenchman, has been pleased to take me as an aide-de-camp. And Liza, your wife, she will go to the country. Are you not ashamed to deprive us of your charming wife? Andre said his wife, addressing her husband in the same coquettish manner in which she spoke to the other men. The Viscount has been telling us such a tale about Mademoiselle George and Bonaparte. Prince Andrew screwed up his eyes and turned away. Pierre, who, from the moment Prince Andrew entered the room, had watched him with glad, affectionate eyes, now came up and took his arm. Before he looked round, Prince Andrew frowned again, expressing his annoyance with whoever was touching his arm. But when he saw Pierre's beaming face, he gave him an unexpectedly kind and pleasant smile. There now, so you too are in the great world, said he to Pierre. I knew you would be here, replied Pierre. I will come to supper with you, may I? he added in a low voice so as to not disturb the Viscount who was continuing his story. No, impossible, said Prince Andrew, laughing and pressing Pierre's hand to show that there was no need to ask the question. He wished to say something more, but at that moment Prince Vasily and his daughter got up to go, and the two young men rose to let them pass. You must excuse me, dear Viscount said Prince Vasily to the Frenchman, holding him down by the sleeve in a friendly way to prevent his rising. This unfortunate fete at the ambassador's deprives me of the pleasure and obliges me to interrupt you. I'm very sorry to leave your enchanting party, said he, turning to Anna Pavlovna. His daughter, Princess Helene, passed between the chairs, lightly holding up the folds of her dress, and the smile shone still more radiantly on her beautiful face. Pierre gazed at her with rapturous, almost frightened eyes as she passed him. Very lovely, said Prince Andrew. Very, said Pierre. In passing, Prince Vasily seized Pierre's hand and said to Anna Pavlovna, Educate this bear for me. He has been staying with me all month and this is the first time I have seen him in society. Nothing is so necessary for a young man as the society of clever women. Anna Pavlovna smiled and promised to take Pierre in hand. She knew his father to be a connection of Prince Vasily's. The elderly lady who had been sitting with the old aunt rose hurriedly and overtook Prince Vasily in the anteroom. 
All the affectation of interest she had assumed had left her kindly and tear-worn face, and it now expressed only anxiety and fear. How about my son, Boris, Prince, said she, hurrying after him in the anteroom. I can't remain any longer in Petersburg. Tell me what news I may take back to my poor boy. Although Prince Vasily listened reluctantly, and not very politely to the elderly lady, even betraying some impatience, she gave him an ingratiating and appealing smile, and he took his hand that he might not go away. What would it cost you to say a word to the emperor, and then he would be transferred to the guards at once, said she. Believe me, princess, I'm ready to do all I can, answered Prince Vasily, but it is difficult for me to ask the emperor. I should advise you to appeal to Rumenyetsev through Prince Golitsyn. That would be the best way. The elderly lady was a Princess Drubetskaya belonging to one of the best families in Russia. But she was poor, and having long been out of society, had lost her former influential connections. She had now come to Petersburg to procure an appointment in the guards for her only son. It was, in fact, solely to meet Prince Vasily that she had obtained an invitation to Anna Pavlovna's reception, and had sat listening to the Viscount's story. Prince Vasily's words frightened her, an embittered look clouded her once handsome face, but only for a moment. Then she smiled again and clutched Prince Vasily's arm more tightly. Listen to me, Prince, said she. I have never yet asked you for anything, and I never will again, nor have I ever reminded you of my father's friendship for you. But now I entreat you for God's sake to do this for my son and I shall always regard you as a benefactor, she added hurriedly. No, don't be angry, but I promise I have asked Galitzin, and he has refused. Be the kind-hearted man you always were, she said, trying to smile through her tears that were in her eyes. Papa, we shall be late, said Prince Helene, turning her beautiful head and looking over her classically molded shoulder as she stood waiting by the door. Influence in society, however, is a capital which has to be economized if it is to last. Prince Vasily knew this, and having once realized that if he asked on behalf of all who begged him, he would soon be unable to ask for himself, he became chary of using his influence. But in Princess Drubetsky's case, he felt... After her second appeal, something like qualms of conscience. She had reminded him of what was quite true. He had been indebted to her father for the first steps in his career. Moreover, he could see by her manners that she was one of those women, mostly mothers, who, having once made up their minds, will not rest until they have gained their end and are prepared, if necessary, to go on insisting day after day and hour after hour and even to make scenes. This last consideration moved him. My dear Anna Mikhailovna, said he with his usual familiarity and weirdness of tone, it is almost impossible for me to do what you ask. 
but to prove my devotion to you and how I respect your father's memory. I will do the impossible. Your son shall be transferred to the guards. Here is my hand on it. Are you satisfied? My dear benefactor, this is what I expected from you. I knew your kindness. He turned to go. Wait, just a word. When he has been transferred to the guards, she faltered. You are on good terms with Michael Ilaranovich Kututsov. Recommend Boris to him as adjutant. Then I shall be at rest, and then... Prince Vasily smiled. No, I won't promise that. You don't know how Kututsov is pestered since his appointment as commander-in-chief. He told me himself that all the Moscow ladies have conspired to give him all their sons as adjutants. No, but do promise. I won't let you go, my dear benefactor. Papa, said his beautiful daughter in the same tone as before, we shall be late. Well, au revoir. Goodbye. You hear her? Then tomorrow you will speak to the emperor. Certainly. But about Kututsov, I don't promise. Do promise, do promise, Vasily, cried Anna Mikhailovna as he went with the smile of a coquettish girl, which at one time probably came natural to her, but was now very ill-suited to her careworn face. Apparently she had forgotten her age, and by force of habit employed all the old feminine arts. But as soon as the prince had gone... Her face resumed its former cold, artificial expression. She returned to the group where the Viscount was still talking, and again pretended to listen, while waiting till it would be time to leave. Her task was accomplished. End of chapter four. So I'm not going to really treat the reading of these chapters with immense criticism at this point, since we've been, what, three weeks since the last time I've recorded an episode, or at least released one. And so it's kind of like the, you know how you, when you were in school and you were like hardcore into a subject and like you ended up just overthinking it so much because you were so entrenched in the material that you were learning and it just didn't make much sense to you. I feel like I got to a point with that, with the reading out loud where I put in so much effort into reading well and being hypercritical of my reading that eventually it just didn't make much sense to me when I was making self-criticisms of my readings. But once I've stepped away for three weeks, all of a sudden I'm like, oh, I get it. You know, like all of a sudden a light bulb has just switched and my instinct, my intuition is starting to kick in a little bit. So I'm really liking that. But I don't want to spend too much time criticizing this specific episode because it's been a while since you've heard my voice and I don't want to just speak for the sake of speaking. So, with that being said, I am planning to release another episode on my regular schedule on Monday, most likely another Grimm's Fairy Tale. And eventually I'll dive into some other short story type of books and other things written pre-1926 that are a little bit more entertaining as well. So stay tuned for that. But thank you so much for listening. 
to another episode of Reading Cadence. I am your host, Phil Olson. And, as they say in show business, that's all he wrote.